Good morning, church. Hope you guys are doing well. Um, this morning we are in John chapter 20. John chapter 20 is where we're at. We're in the end of the book and the end of the series that we're in, Captivated by Jesus. Captivated by Jesus. And last week uh, we looked at Jesus' crucifixion, and this week we are looking at Jesus' resurrection. And we're going to see why Jesus' resurrection should captivate us. And so we're going to be looking at John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18 this morning. I didn't put it on the slides, but I will get to it. Revelation 18, if you just want to mark that in your Bible so you can flip there. Um, I, I, I added that late after I gave the slides to Chris, so you may also mark Revelation 18 so you can follow along when we turn to that text. But John 20 is where we're at this morning. Let me pray, and then we will dive in to the message this morning. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to gather together as the church to open your word and to hear from it, Lord. And God, as we do today, would you captivate us? Would you captivate us so that we are drawn to you, Lord, to the resurrected Lord who provides us with hope? And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a few summers ago, I had the privilege of officiating the wedding of one of my college roommates. And, and this wedding took place in Huntsville, Alabama. And so Jen and I, we, we left the kids at her parents' house and we traveled out to Huntsville for the wedding. And this was really going to be the first trip that we had since we had kids, you know, alone together with just us. And so I thought, well, man, I'm going to book a, a nice hotel for us to stay in. And we, we decided that we would also move from Huntsville to Nashville. So it was pretty close, not, not too far away. We'd already driven all the way over to Huntsville, Alabama. We might as well take a trip on up to Nashville. And so I decided, well, let's, let's get a place right there in the middle of things. Let's get a nice hotel. And so that's, that's what we did. You know, I saw a bunch of pictures online and I thought, man, this is a great place for us to stay. It's a great location. The pictures made it look like it was very comfortable. And as we arrived... Uh, things were looking nice. I mean, the hotel was a nice hotel. Things looked comfortable. Everybody was, was courteous and friendly and helpful as we, as we got in there. But as we went to the receptionist and we began to check in, uh, near the end of the check-in process, the receptionist casually mentioned a $30 a day parking fee that we were going to have to pay on top of the room that we had already paid for. And, you know, it was, it was a nice hotel, so it was a premium. And then adding this exorbitant parking bill on top of that, like my perception of that hotel right then and there absolutely changed. Um, even though it was comfortable, even though it was a good location, because they added this fee on top of it, my perception changed so much so that if I went back to Nashville, I would not stay at that hotel and I, I wrote them some letters afterwards and let them know that I didn't appreciate the fact that they added this $30 parking fee on top of everything at the beginning. And I'm sure something like that has happened to you. One event that you experienced, one conversation, just changed your entire perspective on something. And not only did that happen to me, I'm sure that happened to you, but it also happened to Mary Magdalene and the disciples. They had an unexpected encounter that changed their perspective. That, that changed their lives forever. 
They encountered something or someone much more important than an unexpected parking fee. They encounter, what they encountered changed their lives. And so what is that something that they encountered or who did they encounter? Well, let's find out. As we begin in, in verse 1, we read this. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now, instead of investigating further, she immediately there ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. And the disciple that Jesus loved is John. And Mary comes to John and Peter, assuming the worst, that, that Jesus' body had been stolen away by, by someone, by either the Jews or, or by the Romans. And, and hearing Mary's news, Peter and John, they, they immediately take off for the tomb. And apparently John wants us to know that, that he is a track star because he includes this detail that, that he actually beat Peter to the tomb. Just slip that, slip that in there in case anybody wonders I'm faster than Peter. And this is in the Bible for all of, you know, the rest of time. But even though he arrived first, he didn't go in. Instead, we're told in there in verse 5, stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there. And just as John was looking in, verse 6, Peter came following him and, and he went into the tomb. And as he did, verse 7, he saw the linen cloths lying there in the face cloth, just as John had, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. So right off the bat, we see that Mary Magdalene and the disciples unexpectedly encounter an empty tomb. And seeing the empty tomb, each responds differently. We're told in verse 8 that, that John believed, and, and assuming that John believed that, that Jesus had resurrected from the grave. But in verse 9, we, it seems that, that Peter and the other disciples, they, they hadn't gotten there yet. They weren't with John. They didn't believe that Jesus had resurrected. They, they still thought something else was happening. And certainly that's, that's what Mary Magdalene thought, right? She didn't believe that Jesus had resurrected she responded differently. She responded by weeping over this empty tomb. But before we move on to look at Mary in more detail, let's talk a little bit about this unexpected encounter because encountering an empty tomb shouldn't have been unexpected. I say it shouldn't have been unexpected because Jesus had, had already told his disciples that he was going to resurrect from the dead and he was going to do that on the third day. Back in John chapter 2, all the way back to the beginning of the book, Jesus has this encounter with the Jews. And, and after he goes into the temple and he cleans house, starting in verse 18 of John chapter 2, the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, they want to know, Jesus, what, what authority do you have to come into the temple and clean house like this? I mean, he's gone in there. He's turned over some tables. He's, he's cracked some whips. I mean, if you experience that, you would wonder, what is going on, Jesus? Like, how can you come in here and run all of these people out? What authority do you have? And look how Jesus responds here in verse 19 of chapter 2. Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. 
When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. The sign that Jesus gives of his authority to do these things is a, is a future resurrection from the grave. I mean, think about it. Jesus goes into the temple. He, he casts all these people out, turning tables over, cracking whips, and he says, my authority lies in the future. You're going to have to wait to see who has given me this authority and why I have the authority to do this. But when that time comes, you will know that it was the authority given to me by the Father that I am able to do this. And so the sign that Jesus gives them of his authority is the future resurrection, insinuating that God has given this authority and the disciples were there. They heard this prediction. And we, and we see here that John goes ahead and tells us that, that later on, when they are pointed back to this, they, they remember this statement that Jesus had made and they believe what he had said. But based on the scriptures here, we see that, that this is the case. Jesus tells us. But then we also see another instance that Jesus predicts his own resurrection. They would have been exposed to this in their own scriptures. So in Psalm 1610, which is quoted in both Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 13 regarding Jesus's resurrection. And, you know, when, when, when the New Testament writers quote from the Old Testament, they're providing us with some commentary on the Old Testament. They're telling us what we should think about those verses in the Old Testament as they're reading the text through this Christ-centered lens. And Psalm 16.10 says this, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. Now, based on this scripture, the, the New Testament writers are seeing this as, as a reference to Jesus' own teaching of an empty grave. And they should have expected that the grave would have been empty rather than unexpectedly encountering this and wondering what is going on. On. But it seems that John, he is the only one who has made this connection. And while Peter went back with John to the other disciples, Mary stayed and wept. And she, unex evidently, unexpectedly encountering the, the empty tomb, rocked Mary's world. Mary's world was, was rocked because her hope was crushed. All that she had to look forward to. The one that she believed would, would bring about salvation. Not only had he been killed, but he had been taken away, she thought. And all that she could do was weep outside of this empty tomb for Jesus. Now, if we think about it, Mary's response is, is honest. Mary's response is real. Mary's response is, is, is authentic because without a Savior, we are hopeless people. The late Ravi Zacharias, a Christian apologist, once said, this world is heaven to the atheist. Now, I think the world is nice at times, especially in the spring and the fall, as, as maybe we're going to experience an early fall, some meteorologists say, but, but in the spring and the fall, man, this place is pretty nice, but it's definitely not what I can, would consider heaven. War, disease, sickness, injustice, corruption, and the like run rampant all over our globe. No matter how nice the weather is, we still face all of these difficulties. We're facing the uh, COVID-19 right now. I mean, this world is not heaven at all. This world 
as Rabbi Zacharias is making the point, should not be considered heaven. But to those who have no hope, those who have no God, those who have no future to look forward to, this is all that there is. And that's hopeless. That really is hopeless. Think about it. No house, car or vacation, no job, no salary or position, no achievements, no fame or success, no peace treaty, army or nation, no person or, or piece of technology can ultimately fulfill what our hearts long for. They, they, they cannot provide the hope for which we all seek and for which we all long. That's why we run to those things, because we desire hope. We desire something to make things better for us. And so we run to something that this world has to offer, but we can't and we won't. No matter, no matter what it is, will not make this world the peaceful world in which we all long. If you can't see that, then you're going to end up like Mary one day. You're going to end up helpless and crying outside of the tomb of this world. And this is where the book of Revelation comes in. Revelation pictures this scene for us. In Revelation chapter 18, is there pictures a scene of people mourning over Babylon. And, and as you read through Scripture in the Old Testament, you see that Babylon is, is a real city. It is a real place, but, but it is also a place of, of corruption. It is a place of evil. It is a place of sin. And that idea of Babylon gets picked up and it gets pulled throughout the rest of biblical literature to refer to this evil, corrupt world in which we live. And that's exactly how John is referring to it here. And so while he, he points to a, a real city, what he's, what he's really pointing to here is, is the symbol of what Babylon represents, this evil, corrupt world that is anti-God. And he says that when this world is, is destroyed, man will weep over it. In Revelation 18, beginning in verse 9, we read this. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold and silver and jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots and slaves, that is human souls. The fruit for which your soul I longed has gone from you, and all the delicacies of your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for this great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. And all the shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke from her burning. What city was like this great city? And they drew and they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, 
Alas, alas, for this great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour, she has been laid waste. Notice that. They're crying out for the things of this world, for the riches that they gain from from this evil world system. And they're saying, if you notice there in the last sentence, and as this refrain kept coming up throughout that section, for in a single hour, she has been laid waste. All of the hopes, all of the dreams, all of what mankind was, was putting their hope in was lost in a moment. All that man puts their trust in is gone in the blink of an eye. If we place our hope in money and sex and power and the things of this world instead of God, we too will be mourning outside of the temple of this world. We can't and we never will make this world into the perfect place in which we long for it to be. That's going to meet every single one of our needs. There's always going to be a hole in our heart. We're always going to long for something else, something more. And instead of placing our hope in the things of this world, we have to place ourselves, our hope in the Lord. And that's what John is, is trying to communicate through this narrative. This is what, what Mary recognizes, that, that her hope was in, is in the crucified and the risen Messiah. But he's gone. And so her hope is gone. Mary wasn't left hopeless, though. We aren't left hopeless either. And that's because an empty tomb led to an unexpected encounter in the garden that provides hope. Let's pick back up in verse 11 of John chapter 20. But Mary stood weeping outside of the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And just as she saw them, they, they spoke to her, saying in verse 13, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken my Lord, and and I do not know where they have laid him. But before they had a chance to answer, Mary Mary turns around, and she sees a man standing there. And she thought that the man that was standing there was the gardener, but, but it wasn't. Look at verse 15. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Jesus hadn't been taken away. He'd resurrected from the grave just as he had predicted. And now he is standing there talking to Mary. He's seeking to reveal himself to Mary, to comfort Mary. But Mary's not there yet. She still thinks that Jesus has been taken away. And so when he speaks to her, she thinks he's the gardener. And she said to him in verse 15, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. But Jesus is determined to to comfort her. Jesus is determined to provide her with hope. And he spoke to her again in verse 16 and he said, Mary. And when she heard her name, in Jesus's familiar voice, she knew that wasn't the gardener standing in front of her, but she knew that this was Jesus. She knew at that moment that no one had carried Jesus away, but rather Jesus had resurrected from the grave, just as he said. And I'm sure her unexpected encounter with Jesus dried her tears of, of grief and despair and produced a heart full of hope. I mean, could you imagine being Mary, thinking that all is lost, everything is gone, And then here comes your Savior who provides you with hope. Imagine being Mary. 
And just as Jesus didn't want Mary to remain hopeless, Jesus does not want us to remain hopeless either. Which is why he reveals himself to us. I mean, maybe not in the same way that he revealed himself to Mary, right? I mean, you're not going to go into a garden one day and Jesus is going to physically appear to you and and call out your name and you're going to turn around and see Jesus there. Jesus is not going to reveal himself to you in that way, but Jesus has and he does and he continues to reveal himself to us in his word. That is where we encounter Jesus, and we can encounter Jesus each and every single day as we open His Word, as we read it, and as we learn more and more about Him. And you also encounter Him through the preached Word. If you are here today, Jesus is revealing Himself to you. It is no accident that that you are here today. Jesus wanted you here today. Jesus wanted you to hear this message today. Jesus wants you to believe in Him today, to believe that He is the one who has come and lived a perfect life and has died for you, taking the Father's wrath on Himself so that you might experience life. Jesus wants you to believe that he is the resurrected savior who has defeated death and if you believe in him you will be connected to him and connected to his resurrection as well you will not resurrect to eternal death but you will resurrect to eternal life to a perfect world that is free of sin and disease and corruption and death to a world where jesus is king jesus wants you to believe that today. Jesus wants you to see that today. He is revealing himself to you today through the preached word. You see, there are all kinds of other gods and spiritual beings that exist in this world that, that we can believe in. Demons and, and lesser gods, they, they are real and they are active, but Yahweh, it is Jesus. He is the great I am to whom we give our allegiance. He is the one who who does not change, who is the same yesterday and today and tomorrow. Jesus is the one who promises life and who provides life. But if we believe in these lesser gods, if if we believe and worship someone other than Jesus, because that's exactly what we're doing. We don't worship Jesus. We all worship something. We can go around and say we don't worship anything, but we all worship something. And that something always leads to death. And that's because they're anti-life. They're anti-order. They are anti-God, anti-Jesus who provides life to all who believe. If you want to experience life, life as God has designed it, then you have to believe in Jesus. He is the great I am. Remember when we began this book, we saw in John chapter 1 that that Jesus is God incarnate. All of the attributes of God is embodied in Jesus, and Jesus has come to, to live in this world to not only reveal to us more, who God is, and to to embody and, and shine forth those attributes. But Jesus has come because He is the one who will die for us. No man could do it. No king throughout all of Israel's history, no prophet, no one could live a perfect life and provide the obedience that God said that needed to be provided in order to usher in the new covenant. And here comes Jesus, God incarnate, 
who embodies all of what God is, to show us who God is as he lives and breathes and and has his ministry on this earth. And then he goes and he dies for us as the perfect lamb of God, offering the perfect sacrifice on our behalf. See, as we work through this book, we see that Jesus, we've seen that Jesus is the living water. We've seen that Jesus is the light of the world. We've seen that Jesus is the one who heals and who provides life. And here he is the one who defeats death himself. He reverses the curse in Genesis chapter 3. And he embodies life. And all of those who believe in Jesus and attach themselves to Jesus, that curse is taken away. And we can now experience life in a restored relationship with the Father. We can walk with Him in a perfect world one day. We can have unhindered access to the Father one day. And Jesus wants you to hear this message today. Jesus is revealing Himself to you today. Jesus wants you to follow Him. And so, won't you answer that call? Won't you repent of your sins and believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Won't you turn from doing things your own way and seeking to live according to your own wisdom and turn to live according to God's wisdom? Repent and follow Jesus. Follow His counsel, His wisdom, and the life that He provides. Turn to Jesus today. Won't you profess Jesus as your Lord And as your Savior, He is the only one who can provide us with hope. Won't you turn to Him today? Quit trusting in the world. We see that the world is going to be destroyed in in a matter of moments. Turn and start trusting in Jesus today. Jesus truly is the only hope that we have. And Jesus is the only one who can intercede on our behalf. Notice what He tells Mary in verse 17. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And apart from telling her not to cling to him and tell others what she has experienced, he tells them that that he is going to ascend to the Father. And it's not just his Father, it is is their Father as well. It's not just his God, but, but their God as well. See, Jesus, when he talks in this way, he's talking as as a priest. Priests are those who who intercede on behalf of the people. And here Jesus is saying, listen, I am going to ascend. I'm not going to ascend to the Holy of Holies where the priest of old used to go in and and sprinkle some blood. No, I am going to ascend to the heavenly temple and I'm going to sit at the right hand of the Father and it is there that I am going to intercede for you night and day, pleading your case before the Father, saying that I have spilt my blood on their behalf. See, this is what Jesus is saying. I am going to be, I am going to ascend. I have satisfied the Lord's wrath. And I will make sure that he knows that all of those who have believed in him are covered by that blood. Just as the priest did on the day of atonement and sprinkled blood to cover the people and all throughout the temple and over the mercy seat, Jesus sprinkles his blood on us. And we are made clean. We are made whole by him. But the place of Jesus' intercession is different and much greater than that of the Old Testament priests. You see, Jesus is not just any old high priest. 
Jesus is the true and better high priest who not only offered the perfect sacrifice on our behalf, but he mediates for us day and night in the presence of the Father as the resurrected Savior. An empty grave isn't the only unexpected thing Mary encountered that day. She also encountered an unexpected Savior who repaired her relationship with the Father and provided her with hope for the future. And today, you can encounter that same resurrected Savior. Jesus can repair your relationship with the Father today, and you can have hope for the future. If you repent of your sins and turn to Jesus and believe in Him, that hope, that hope for which we all long, that hope for which we all desire and we all want, can be yours today, and it will not burn up. It will not be destroyed in the, in the matter of moments. It will last forever, for Jesus is the eternal, resurrected Savior. And so instead of following leaders, instead of worshiping other gods, instead of seeking hope in this world, if you don't know Jesus, turn to Jesus today. And if you do know Jesus, if you would call Him your Savior, if you have repented of your sins and you do believe in Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior, today is a day to praise Jesus. Because he is resurrected just as he said. Allow the resurrection to captivate you, to draw you in so that you will worship and praise our resurrected Savior. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the resurrection. Lord, we thank you that you have not left us without hope. God, we pray if there's anyone here today who does not know that hope, who's seeking hope in this world, that that you might draw them to yourself, that you might work in their life right now to show them that the hope in which they are trusting is a false hope that will not lead to life but will lead to death. And that they might turn and believe in Jesus as their Lord and as their Savior. For those of us who have believed, Lord, and do believe, Help us to continue that belief and allow us to be captivated, to be captivated by the resurrected Lord. Lord, we thank you for this day. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.